let me take just a moment and again express appreciation on behalf of the eldership and the membership at large for the ability we each have today to assemble and to gather. We're certainly thankful for our visitors that have come our way and of course our membership alike. It is our sincerest desire that all that is done and said will be uplifting and encouraging. In the banner of Colossians 3.17 we read, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. As that is our desire and our wish this morning, let me take just a moment and perhaps beseech your prayers on behalf of myself as well as the Free Will Congregation in Jackson County. That gospel meeting begins next Lord's Day morning and will continue from Sunday morning through Wednesday evening. And certainly delighted and honored that they've asked my family and me to be a part of it. And certainly hopeful that as I proclaim or attempt to proclaim the Word of God, it will be indeed messages that will be most beneficial and fruitful. I would invite you to keep that meeting in your prayers, if you would, that all would be as positive and just exactly as the God of heaven would, would, it, would wish it to be. As always, I'm so thankful for the young men and the others of our congregation, all those men that will so ably and capably fill this pulpit as it'll do happen next Lord's Day. The talents and the abilities that are here are just almost boundless and certainly appreciative for their willingness to take on that obligation and that duty next Lord's Day. I know the lessons will be encouraging and very, very powerful. For the time of our study this morning, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 John. For the next few moments, I would invite you to consider a lesson entitled, Commandments and the Love of God. And as a part of that, we will primarily focus on some passages found within that little epistle of 1 John, nestled near the end of the New Testament. As you are moving in the direction of finding that particular book, here are some introductory comments that might in fact point the way towards some conclusions we shall find as we study this lesson this morning. Amazing, isn't it, that the commands that you and I encounter in the Bible are commands that so often represent in such clear, powerful ways the nature of what God has said, the thoroughness of what His demands are. And yet, there is no small amount of discussion and sometimes even controversy as it relates to interpreting those commandments. In fact, there are those who, in fact, would base the fullness of their life on the nature of that those commandments are essential, that God has expressly said these things and that they are not optional. No doubt many within the sound of my voice would feel exactly that way, that these commandments are exactly required. But there are many others in our world who feel very differently. They feel, in fact, in some cases that those commandments are at best suggestions. That God really doesn't demand that you actually keep them. He wants you to maybe try, but it's not that it's that serious. Perhaps a bit shocking is that there are still others that I would call a third category who in fact rely so strongly on what they call the grace of God that they claim really it's not even important and what's more it's even wrong to assert that one should try to keep those commandments. That God's grace will cover it all they claim. I would invite us for the next few moments to make a clearer appreciation about the commandments of God and use the book of 1 John as our guide. In fact, we'll have a bit more to say about these categories of individuals as we move through the lesson this morning. As we do that, though, perhaps a few observations would be in order first. 
I believe that we by and large appreciate what is meant by commandment. It is a requirement. It is an absolute presentation of obligation and duty. If you wish to consider it so, it's being told what to do. Now, we understand by and large what it means to be told what to do. We have each been there on so many occasions. Our parents gave us things to do, and we were expected to do them under penalty of punishment if we did not do so. There are times at the work site when the boss gives us things that he or she expects to be done. Commandments, you see, then are not that unusual to our way of thinking. It's also not unusual to the presentation of the Word of God, is it? You'll notice that almost a thousand times in the King James Bible, the word command or some form of it is used. Almost a thousand times. As you give thought to that, no doubt many of those are really commands from the nature of God in which statements are made that the Lord has commanded something or that the God of heaven has commanded something. And no small number of that total is found even within the pages of the New Testament. Because of the nature of commandments and the character of numbers like that, it goes without saying that there are those who thus look upon commandments and find in them that which is inconvenient. Some find in them that which is even unpleasant at times. I think we each remember that even from our earlier days in life, don't we? Sometimes what dad and mom commanded was not always what I preferred. But however, I soon learned it was best to do it. And I'm sure that you learned the same. We also notice at times we may find it inconvenient what the boss commands. He may say, I need you to stay late Friday for a meeting when we'd much prefer to leave at regular time on Friday. The thought about these commandments, you see, sometimes do bear and do carry things that are not all that convenient for us. As you can see about midway through that slide, it's also true that there are times when people view God's commands as unpleasant and inconvenient too. How many in our world would call into question, you must be baptized? They look at that as being something that not only is unessential, but it's inconvenient, it's not that significant, and yet, didn't Jesus say, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Mark 16, verse 16. We notice other commandments, not forsaking the assembly. As you and I appreciate our assembly today and our gathering, we have looked upon the nature of that command, and we have, in fact, from the depths and love of our heart, desired to assemble and to meet. But how many others in our world today, at this very moment, have chosen not to and do not intend to? Quite often on Sunday morning as we drive here, we pass by a lake region and we often see a truck there with a, an empty trailer behind it and the boat's already out on the lake, you see. It reminds us, you see, that others have made very different choices today. As you think about the nature of God's commands, you'll notice, as I mentioned before, under the banner of passages like John fourteen fifteen, If you love me, keep my commandments, the Lord said. We notice furthermore in Revelation twenty-two fourteen, Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. 
based on passages like those two, there are many who would say God's commandments are absolute and that they must be obeyed in order to be pleasing to Him. As I mentioned earlier, though, there are others who will look at a verse like this one. In Ephesians 2 verse 8, the inspired writer pointed out this, And you are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And thus they say, well, there it is. It's not of me. It's not of my works. He will save me. And so His commandments, though the suggestions they may be, they are not as needful and as essential as some might like to think. When you and I think about the grace of God and truly how wonderful it is, we each know well that many in our world have misrepresented and misunderstood that marvelous topic. And so when they claim that God's commandments are not essential, that a person is saved by grace without any works, Romans 3.28, they have mistaken and in fact misused so much of God's marvelous New Testament. When you speak about the commands of God with me, may I invite you to look then at the book of 1 John. As we move to the next slide and give thought to several lessons found in this book, I would invite you to begin by noting that before we're finished today, we shall find that there are many matters that relate directly to God's commandments. And when I say many matters, I believe, without spoiling that which is yet to come, we shall find that many of the most needful, most, most important, and most significant things from the eternal standpoint hinge on our obedience to His commandments. Let's look at the first one. In the second chapter of this book, in verses 5 and 6, with a special emphasis on verse 5, in a moment, we shall find an interesting relationship between the commandments of God and His love. But for now, as we think about the nature of it, might I ask, love for God is a very basic matter, isn't it? In fact, anyone even remotely familiar with the teaching of the sacred scriptures would appreciate that love for God is absolutely basic. It's elementary and it prompts to everything that follows. In the Old Testament, it was read in, the, in these words. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and ye shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Later in the New Testament era, on one occasion, a lawyer from the Pharisees asked Jesus a question, which is the greatest of the commandments, he asked. Matthew 22, verses 36 and following. And we notice that the Lord's immediate reply, there was not even any extended discussion of the point. His immediate response was, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. A quotation of that very passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6. We find then immediately that our love for God will be the guiding thought behind really all of our service. If we don't love Him, it's not likely that we're going to ever be able to serve Him acceptably because we will not be interested enough to keep His commandments. In this text, read verse 5 with me. 1 John 2 verse 5, But whoso keepeth his word... 
In Him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in Him. Interesting, isn't it, that a moment ago we noticed that in Deuteronomy 6, there was this statement that thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and that that love should be the fullness of your being, all your mind, all your strength. But yet we know that wasn't the only Old Testament commandment. There was the command, thou shalt not steal. There was the command, thou shalt not covet. But yet those commands prompted one's appreciation that they are based on love for God. If we love God, we'll respect all those other commandments, or the Old Testament people would, and they would strive to live in harmony with them. So it is today. Love for God must be the most basic of all, but yet it appreciates in us an understanding that all those other things the New Testament has said, like being baptized and like singing, as we've done this morning, all of that follows from our love for Him and what His Word has dictated it again says, Whoso keepeth his word, in him is the love of God perfected. If you and I don't keep his commandments, then that means the love that God has exhibited toward us is not completed, it is not perfected in us, it is not manifested in the way that God would wish it to be done. And based on a passage like that, when it isn't manifested really at all, we can't claim to love Him if we don't keep His commandments, such as absolute nonsense. Those then who look upon the commandments of God as optional, that look upon those commandments as insignificant, they have missed the mark by a far stretch, haven't they? The commands of God are not only needful, they are extraordinarily significant. You'll perhaps notice one other comment. As we've given thought to the nature of that word perfected, again, that means completed. I suppose any person, rightfully thinking, would want God's love to be manifested in a complete way, in a mature way, in him or her. And yet, if one doesn't keep God's commands, that has not happened. It doesn't sound to this point as if God's commands then are minor or that they're unimportant. What about another thought, another lesson that you and I might learn? You're the bottom of the slide. It comes not only in appreciating the love of God. What about knowing God? There are many in our world who think that they know God. In fact, I suppose if you polled a thousand people at random, the vast majority of them would claim they know God. They base that thinking on the fact that they have at least heard the word God, that maybe they've attended some Bible classes when they were young. But you see, they misunderstand as we're about to see what it means to know God. Knowing God is exceedingly important, isn't it? From in fact, even in the days of the Old Testament, knowing God not only was important, it was essential. Look at verses like Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. It was therein asserted that even though in that day and time it was an important matter to know God, the day was coming under the New Testament era when the knowledge of God would even be more thorough and more complete. We also appreciate even Paul had stated, hadn't he, that beautiful reward that he understood. In 2 Timothy 1 verse number 12, 
for the which cause also suffer these things. For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul knew the one in whom he had placed his trust, and he furthermore knew that God was a safe keeper of that which was his spirit and soul. Can you and I then not appreciate that knowing God is of basic significance? In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. As often as we have read and thought about that verse, we know that it says that the wrath of God will be poured out on those who have not obeyed. But notice it also states that His wrath will be poured out on those who do not know Him. How important is it then to know Him? How important is it to not have just some cursory knowledge or understanding, but to deeply appreciate and respect Him for what He has revealed? Let's look back at 1 John. Notice also in that same chapter in which we were a moment ago. Look with me at verses number 3 and 4. And hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He that saith, I know Him, and keepeth not His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. Question. As we have learned already that at the day of judgment... At the return of Christ, there will be great wrath and vengeance poured out on those that do not know Him. And so the question, how do I know Him? How do I come to know Him? John has just provided an inspired answer. It says, hereby we do know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. And thus, if you and I in our appreciation of, in our diligent study of, in our application of that which we find in His Word. The text says that if in keeping His commandments, we know that we know Him. Two usages of the word know in that one verse. We know that we know Him. It is so sad and tragic that many in the religious community think that absolute knowledge is merely a dream at best. And yet John said, we can know God, and furthermore, we can know that we know Him. If we believe the sacred writer, we thus know that so many who make their claims in the religious world are very much misguided. But you will notice, of course, in this we learn a valiant lesson. And that valiant lesson is clearly this. If we don't keep His commandments, we do not know God. Tragic then, isn't it, to appreciate the vast numbers of those we mentioned earlier who think that God's commands are mere suggestions. For based on a verse like this one, they can never know that they know God. And in that lack of knowledge, how sad it shall be for them at the judgment. You and I realize that knowing God is presented to us in the beauty spot of 1 Corinthians 2, verse number 9. I'd invite you to read with me from verses 9 through verse 14 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and listen to the grandeur and the greatness of what the God of heaven has revealed to us and for us. In these verses, we read the following. But as it is written, 
eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. We'll complete that in a moment, but I might ask you to appreciate, Paul said in verse number 12, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God. You might ask, how do we know these things? Let's read the next verse. Which things also we speak, not with wisdom, not the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You'll appreciate with me that a passage that rings with such beauty. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard the fullness of what God has revealed. There might be many who think that that points to the grandeur of heaven. I might suggest it does not. For Paul in the next verse said, These things have now been revealed. You and I aren't in heaven yet. These are things found in this book, my friend. These are things that the God of heaven has now in this day and era revealed to you and me and we can know them. It is in this book we find the richness of all that the God of heaven has presented. We find the grandeur and the loveliness of the gospel. We find what's required to be saved. We find the beauty of the church, the obligations that lead, of course, into everlasting life. This is that to which Paul referred. These matters that His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has provided for you and me in the here and now. Oh, what a treasure is the Word of God. As you give thought to that word, notice again, it's in keeping what it says that we know God. Those commands that we have mentioned and referenced earlier point us then to how tragic it has been that some look upon these commandments as really being very different than what we've studied. God has said what He meant, and He meant what He said. And these commandments are presenting us not only His love, but they also let us know the way we know Him. Let's look at yet another lesson, though, because there is even more to be found. What about the relationship that these commands bear to prayer? It's at this point that many might in fact call into question, is there any relationship between one's prayer life and the commandments of Scripture? No doubt many in our world would think that there is very little, if any, relationship, but I would ask that you read with me a little bit differently. We know that prayer is so important to the Christian. For it is in prayer that we speak, of course, to the one whom we treasure and love and the one who sent His Son to die for us and the one, of course, who we want to be with forevermore. We know in prayer there is such strength and encouragement and edification and there's also great fortitude to meet the challenges and temptations of the day. We are admonished, of course, to pray without ceasing. But notice in the book of 1 John, something else is said about prayer. 
May I ask you to notice with me in chapter 3, verse 24. In the closing part of this particular chapter, we find so many interesting thoughts about the nature of prayer. As we return to this particular consideration in just a moment, maybe we can highlight one thought as we lead to it. We know that the Word of God has promised that individuals can pray, but might we ask this, who has God promised to hear? And whose prayers has He promised to answer? Has He promised to answer the prayers of every single individual who ever prays, no matter who that person may be? Or has He in His Word spoken that He has promised to hear only certain prayers and to answer only certain prayers? You'll notice that several particular passages on that slide Help us see that there is a rather unique answer to that question. In John 9 verse 31, that man that had been born blind simply on that occasion said, We know that God heareth not the prayers of sinners. And we remember that David more than once in the Psalms had uttered something similar and so had the prophet Isaiah. Perhaps our point would then be well taken as follows. We know that God has promised in language like this, For the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. He is aware of what every person does. But when it comes to the prayers of petition, and those honorable matters of beseeching Him and asking Him for things, we encounter a verse like this one, 1 Peter 3 verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. Whose prayers are God's ears open to? And whose prayers is it that in fact encircle the marvelous throne of God and come before Him in ways that thus lead to His response to those prayers? We notice more than once it is said to be the righteous, isn't it? In Psalm 34, verses 15 and 17 alike, we notice it's the righteous whose prayers ascend and He's promised to hear and He's promised to in fact provide response to them. Might I ask us today, then, what can you and I say about that individual who's not righteous? Has God promised to hear his or her prayers? Has God promised to answer their prayers? There's not the slightest hint in the Scriptures that He has promised such. No wonder, then, you and I must desire to be righteous, else our prayers are vain. They are powerless. We notice one more time in James 5, the effectual fervent prayers of who? A righteous man availeth much. We have no promise in Scripture that that person who doesn't live in honor of righteousness, that God will respond in, in positive character to his or her prayers. What then does it take to make a person righteous? Maybe 1 John 3 verses 22 to 24 shed some light on that thought. I would invite you to read those passages with me, again, beginning in verse 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. And he that keepeth His commandments dwelleth in Him, and He in Him." And hereby we know that He abideth in us by the Spirit which He hath given us. 
Verse 22 of 1 John 3 then had begun like this. And whatsoever we ask, our petitions to the Heavenly Father, our supplications to Him, our requests of Him, He says, whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him. So those petitions, those requests are granted. On what basis? It says, because we keep His commandments. Let us emphasize that again. Because. That is a word that translates, that means, for the purpose of, on the basis of, and it says, because we keep His commandments. So if we don't keep His commandments, if we have not that desire and that interest, that pursuit in life, we can't expect Him to answer our prayers. How important is it then to keep His commandments? We notice it's absolutely basic if we expect our prayers to carry forth that which we desire. As you can see on that slide, this notion of our prayers and the importance that it attaches to them leads us to conclude that particular thought in this way. Obedience is something that we've highlighted to this point. And the lessons and the benefits to us are amazing. But perhaps one more. It is contained also in that verse that we just read. Verses 23 and 24. I suppose anyone even aware of the teaching of Scripture would again appreciate that it's important to be in Him. For it's only in Him that we appreciate the glory of His blood and the cleansing of our sins. But question, in what way do you and I abide in Him? I mentioned earlier that probably if a particular poll was taken, many would say, well, I know Him, I abide in Him, I live in Him. A very fair question would be, how do you know that that happens? We know more than once in Scripture how important it is to have at least two witnesses. In the Old Testament, a person couldn't be put to death without at least two. Jesus stated Himself there were two witnesses of His efforts, Himself and the Heavenly Father. John chapter 7. Question. You claim then that you abide in Him. Who's your other witness? I suppose it'd be fair to look again at that verse. The verse says, verse 24... He that keepeth His commandments dwelleth in Him, and He in Him. There's your other witness. You are one witness, but you need God as the other one. And the only way He provides that witness is if you keep His commandments. We notice then that if we don't keep His commandments, we do not love Him, our prayers are useless, we do not abide in Him, and furthermore, we don't even know Him. God's commandments are so basic and they lead us to appreciate just how submissive, how humble we must be and simply strive to do that which He has commanded. Here's some thoughts about that last element. In Revelation 14.1, as well as Revelation later in that same book, Revelation 22 verses 4 and 5, we notice that a beautiful response... And a beautiful description is given to those who have God's name on their forehead. To those who have so lived that they have abided and dwelled in Him and continued in Him so that they even can be described as wearing His name on their forehead. They are the ones, by the way, that will be saved eternally. In Revelation 22, when all the dust is settled, 
the curse is all gone and the beautiful city is then inhabited. We notice those that have been permitted to enter are those who have abided in Him. If you and I don't abide in Him, we'll never enter heaven. And yet abiding in Him is predicated on keeping His commandments. I hope that in our study today of 1 John, we have at least been reminded of how important God's commandments are. It does take us to one last verse. It's the very one that was read for our lesson text this morning. 1 John 5 verse 3 again says, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. That word grievous means burdensome, that which is filled with a heavy yoke. And we notice that to those that love the Lord, none of God's commands will be looked upon that way. But rather, they will delight in the fact that they have been able to learn what those commandments are, and with joy they can seek to keep them because of all the blessings we've learned today. In keeping His commandments, one not only abides in the Lord, but one knows God. One appreciates His love and one's prayers are powerful. What about your life and mine today? Have you looked in time upon God's commandments as being inconvenient and unpleasant? Have you looked upon them as being something that you'd rather not do? If so, make a change today. Come back to the first love if again you have become a member of the body of Christ at one point. Why not come back and again rejuvenate in your life an appreciation for those commandments? And every one of them is important. If you have never obeyed the gospel initially, at least to this point, you have turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to the commands of God. You have in essence stated, I don't care what happened with Christ at Calvary. I don't care about the church that He purchased. I don't even care really about the nature at this point of my soul. But I would ask you to please rethink about that. You don't know what tomorrow may bring. You may pass from this life and death long before tomorrow. What's more, the Son of God may come back. If your life isn't right, notice you don't have really anything to look forward to after death, surely. For all that there will be is torment, agony, and a strong regret because you know what you will have missed. Why not, in fact, today obey your blessed Master? He died for you at the cross. He shed His blood that you might have sins forgiven. Why not come in love to Him today and allow His commandments and your keeping of them to be the guiding thrust of your life? If we can be of help to you today in that state of life, you need to believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name as a Son of God and be baptized. If we could be of assistance in that way to you today, or again in helping you to rededicate your life, why not come and do so while together we stand and while we sing?